Hello, and welcome to Status Hour. I'm Manijay Maradian, and I'm one of the editors of Jedaliya's Iran page. This is the third episode of the 1979 Generation, a podcast which looks back at the experiences of Iranian feminists who participated in the Iranian Revolution, and particularly in the March 1979 women's uprising in Tehran. On March 8th of that year, International Women's Day, thousands of women poured into the streets to contest a new government decree forcing women who worked in government offices to wear hijab. This came on the heels of the banning of women judges and several other new forms of gender discrimination. Over the next few days, tens of thousands of women marched, rallied, and engaged in mass sit-ins to try to expand the revolutionary agenda to include freedom and full equality for women. These women were subjected to a vicious backlash from Islamists, liberals, and leftists alike. Their demands were politically undermined, and they were physically driven off the streets by religious vigilantes. Nonetheless, the initial decree on mandatory hijab was temporarily withdrawn. It would take several more years before it would become the law of the land. Part of my motivation in doing these interviews was to center that uprising, which had been until recently quite marginalized in academic histories and conventional narratives of the Iranian revolution. Many people in my generation, I was born just before the revolution, and in subsequent generations had not heard about this event or the other possible futures it gestured towards. My goal was to stage a series of intergenerational dialogues between myself and my invited guests to create an accessible archive of the memories, knowledge, and insights of the 1979 generation of Iranian feminists, which had been obscured by four decades of the Islamic Republic. But now, most unexpectedly, it seems that everywhere I look, people are talking about the March 1979 women's uprising as a historical reference point for the unprecedented events unfolding in Iran as I speak. Suddenly, what was once a relatively obscure and fleeting movement has become a standard talking point in conversations with journalists, scholars, and activists commentating on what is happening in Iran. As our listeners are likely aware, less than four weeks ago, on September 16th, a young Kurdish Iranian woman named Masa Jina Amini was killed in police custody in Tehran after having been arrested by the so-called morality police for not wearing her headscarf according to strict new standards. Her death triggered an uprising, which began in the Kurdish region of Iran where Amini lived and spread across the entire country. For the first time since the 1979 March uprising, protesters explicitly targeted the policy of compulsory hijab and put the demand for women's freedom from state control over their bodies at the center of their grievances. Here to speak with me about how the legacies of the March 1979 women's movement are playing out today is Heidi Morisi, Professor of Liberal Arts and Professional Studies at York University in Toronto, Canada. Dr. Morisi was part of the Marxist opposition to the Shah in Iran in the 1970s. She was a founder of the Iranian National Union of Women in 1979 and a member of its first executive and editorial boards before leaving Iran in 1984. She went on to produce a vast body of feminist scholarship about Iran, Islamic fundamentalism, and the Iranian diaspora. She is the author of five books and numerous articles and book chapters. 
Her first book, Populism and Feminism in Iran, Women's Struggle in a Male-Defined Revolutionary Movement, was one of the first feminist analyses of the main Marxist opposition in Iran, the Fedayan, and features a chapter on the 1979 women's uprising. Dr. Morisi, I'm thrilled to have you on the show in this historic moment when Iranian women and men are out in the streets once again demanding freedom. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having me. It's a pleasure to be talking with you. Before we get deep into the history and some of the main arguments and feminist critiques you've made as a scholar, can you just start by sharing with us your thoughts and feelings as you follow what is happening in Iran right now? The present uprising in Iran that's in its uh, fourth week, I believe, is the longest and the most widespread revolts that the Islamic regime has seen uh, in its uh, 43 years of its life. It is quite unique and uh, unprecedented in uh, several other ways. Uh, I mean, in addition to the length of uh, these uprisings. First and uh, most notably, it is a woman center revolt. It is a uh, revolt that uh, was started by women and led by women with the, the, of course, the clear support and participation of the young and not so young men. Uh, the slogan, Women, Life, Freedom, Zan, Zendegi, Azadi, uh, that originated in Kurdistan is now chanted as uh, the central motto of the protests in uh, about 170 cities and towns. Uh, and it is important to note that uh, this is the case even in most conservative religious soaked cities of uh, Qom and Mashhad. This in itself, in my view, is a victory for women and their long struggle for 43 years for their rights and uh, shows that women's resistance against the Islamist ideals of womanhood uh, that, as you mentioned, uh, started at the very beginning of uh, the 1979 revolution, finally has succeeded in uh, delegitimizing the regime in the eyes of overwhelming majority of people in Iran. Needless to say that uh, at enormous costs and suffering to women themselves. The second thing is that this motto that they are using is uh, at the same time an expression of solidarity, uh, not only uh, with women, but to national minorities, more specifically the Kurds. This is the most, um, as we know, discriminated, victimized, and at the same time, most uh, resilient section of the population. Uh, I mean, two, I, I must say, women and national minority. Mm -hmm. So whatever happens next, and obviously that's not possible to predict uh, right now, uh, I think these revolts marked a, definitely a turning point in Iran's modern his, history. If we consider uh, other uh, uprisings, major uprisings in the last uh, two decades, for example, uh, the 
2009 uh, against the um, elections of Ahmadinejad, the 2017 against high prices of uh, basic goods, and uh, particularly the 2019 against fuel prices, uh, uh, price hikes, or other protests, for example, um, the deliberate shooting down of Ukrainian flight 725 by the Revolutionary Guards. This is a different revolt, different uprising. It is a kind of um, celebration of life that the new generation uh, feels that uh, it is entitled to. Um, they want to enjoy their lives. This is their basic rights and social and cultural rights that they are fighting at the same time that um, there are other problems, economic, uh, in particular, uh, lack of uh, meaningful employment or any prospects for a better life in future. So um, it is very important um, at the same time because it is a message of unity among uh, and between the fellow citizens, regardless of where they live, uh, what is their ethnicity uh, or gender. So mm -hmm. this is a feature that, um, you know, uh, differentiates this uprising from uh, the other. It, it must be it incredible to see this level of unity, especially given um, the fact that that kind of unity around women's demands uh, did not come to be in 1979 when the revolution was very new, when um, the Islamic Republic had yet to even formally exist. And there was this period of kind of flux. And it was in that moment when um, you and many other women tried to kind of intervene in the direction of the revolution um, to, to place demands for women's equality at the center um, and were not able to be successful at that time. But I wanted to ask you um, to, to sort of take us back as, as much as you can um, to that time and talk about how did you and your, your comrades, how did you decide um, just after the revolution to organize women specifically? What, what, what made you decide that? And what do you, um, what was your understanding at the time of why it was so important to organize women as women? Sure, I will uh, come to that. But uh, at the same time, you know, before, be, be, because you asked me, how do I feel? What, does, yeah. what is uh, um, my take uh, yes. on this uprising? I want to also mention that I am a little bit concerned at the same time. Mm. Because many people may not, in, in the West, I mean, may not uh, actually know well um, the capacity of the Islamic regime for uh, using force and coercion against, uh, against the protesters. And this is really something that uh, concerns me. And at the same time, um, I am also, you know, uh, wary about the fact that so far um, the protesters, uh, the protest has remained on the streets, mm -hmm. in universities and schools. Mm -hmm. uh, it needs definitely, I mean, um, as long as the factories and government offices 
don't join the depart various departments, ministries don't uh, join this protest that is uh, targeting very specifically the totality of the regime. Uh -huh. Uh, then it is uh, room for concern. And um, if streets and factories join forces, then the regime will be in deep trouble and people can uh, talk about revolution. So far, yes, we, these are very similar in terms of the, some of the tactics and um, the militancy of the protesters very similar to 1979, but uh, as long as there are not uh, widespread strikes and the joining force of the, uh, for example, the oil industry uh, workers to the, um, to the movement, then, uh, you know, I, it, it a little bit uh, makes me fearful. Of course, as you know, you know, today we, uh, yesterday we heard that there are several um, strikes, small strikes in the oil industry, yes. but still there is a need for more. Yes, so yes I think um, petrochemical workers at at least one site in Boucher have walked out, but you're right, we don't yet know if that will spread across the entire industry. Um, and yes, that would be um, a, a huge shift in terms of the balance of forces and the potential to bring the government to a halt, right? So I absolutely share that um, concern that the street protests alone, you know, are they're vulnerable to tremendous violence and there will need to be additional tactics that can really go to the heart of the system and the economy. So we'll, we'll have to keep watching to see if the oil strike spreads and if if other strikes um, come out, I was thinking that this may be, you know, the the first oil workers' strike in support of, you know, feminist <laughs> demands in the history of maybe any country. Um, so there are some really interesting, um, you know, ways to think about this um, and what it means to have um, this very strategic, very important group of workers um, walk off the job. Um, in this moment, in this context, with these demands on the table. Yeah, that's very, very important, uh, right on. <laughs> uh, particularly that, you know, we are dealing with, with a struggle. Uh, one part is well-equipped in terms of the, you know, using whatever in their power to crush the protesters, the, the, the youth, basically, now they are shooting at, at uh, 15 year olds, as, as you know. Yes. And the, the other side is truly nonviolent. I mean, uh, astonishing, uh, astonishingly so, because we can't co consider putting fire to garbage bins or blocking uh, police advances by stones uh, or uh, blocking passages of ambulances because they know that the police use these ambulances for to carry detainees, street detainees. These are um, legitimate acts of self-defense really and you can't call, you can't identify it as violent. Um, but uh, what is also, I, I should mention what's notable is that not a single act of looting has been reported. 
by the protesters. And, and we know that that's usually the case uh, in many acts of mass protest elsewhere, but not in Iran right now. So um, to end you know, yeah. um, this, this part, what they, they have brought to life, to Iranian life is hope, hmm. something that has been lost for many, many years. So um, let's hope for, for the best and see what happens. As for your question about uh, organizing uh, the protesters in, in the, the 1979 protest, yes. yeah. I must say that um, this was the most spontaneous um, demonstration that you can imagine uh, with that, uh, with, with in uh, considering um, the large uh, crowd that poured into the street. Mm. It is true, I want to say that um, taking you back a little bit to that those years, in the weeks before the International Women's Day in uh, 1979, mm. there were reports of uh, tension and clashes between Khomeini's devotees uh, that uh, in those days we called them, had identified them as Hezbollahs in the streets, in the universities, high schools, uh, wherever uh, you went. Mm -hmm. um, and newspapers were full of letters from uh, women, uh, lawyers, journalists, academics, uh, writers, uh, you name it, mm -hmm. who expressed uh, concern over uh, rumors that uh, the Family Protection Act that was um, enacted during uh, the Shah's period were going to be abolished by the new government. Mm. And, um, you know, all kinds of arguments um, in favor of uh, waiting, the new regime should wait until a new law has been enacted before abolishing um, the old one. So um, also rumors about um, the banning of uh, female judges from the bench, so on and so forth. On March 7, Ayatollah Khomeini in a speech that was delivered uh, from home, uh, criticized the government of Bazargan for not being revolutionary. That's what he uh, identified it. Mm. And uh, he said that ministries and government of offices were full of sins uh, because, um, because of the presence of uh, naked women. That's mm. how he identified those of us who were not uh, veiled, were not veiling uh, according to his idea of not being naked. Mm. Um, obviously, you know, he had heard about or had got reports about plans for celebration of International Women's Day uh, uh, that uh, had not happened for 40, uh, 50 years uh, during wow. the two Pahlavis. Wow. And, um, and he wanted, it is quite remarkable that he wanted to use the uh, the occasion that women wanted um, to protest actually, or to get assurances from the government that their rights would be protected. He used exactly that day to order basically women to cover up. 
So uh, on March 8, when I say, you know, I, I want to qualify why I say this protest, the anti-whale protests of 1979 as spontaneous. Yes, we, we were going to the, um, where the, a rally was planned at the Tehran University and women from all over uh, the city, Northern Tehran, were um, marching towards Tehran University and clashes had already started between women and uh, these Hezbollah gangs. In the auditorium, women uh, could hardly sit and listen to uh, speeches about, for example, the history of International Women's Day in New York, so on and so forth. Loud voices were raised that demanded the speakers to address immediate concerns and uh, fears of uh, women. And so uh, spontaneously, um, the crowd voted for a march and burst into uh, the street, Shahrazad. Uh, what was important was that no political organization or party was able uh, actually to take credit for the mobilization of uh, women. And also the very fact that the protesting women uh, were perhaps instinctively at least uh, saw the, um, the rising tide of semi-fascistic and misogynist uh, regime that was uh, in the process of uh, consolidation. So uh, the anti-veil protests lasted several hours and developed into many sit-ins and work stoppages in uh, ministries, hospitals, government agencies, girls' high schools, and tens of women's associations and groups in uh, public and private uh, institutions and agencies uh, and universities were formed. Um, however, unfortunately, as you are aware, uh, in the political mood that uh, prevailed in post-revolutionary Iran, uh, feminist demands uh, or the idea of women's autonomy and uh, the right to choice were totally irrelevant. Uh, the women's uprising could not move what I have identified in one of the books, my books that you mentioned uh, as populist left mm -hmm. to um, come to the defense of either women's rights or other democratic rights uh, and in, uh, individual liberties. I must uh, say that a handful of left-inclined men uh, supported the protesting women. Some of them uh, stayed with the marches to the end um, and tried to basically defend women because in those days, um, early days of the revolution, still, you know, the regime was not so um, stable, didn't feel stable, and uh, they wouldn't shoot at us, mm. uh, demonstrators, but there were lots of pushing and shoving from both sides. Mm. We were surrounded by these mm. gangs. Wow. And um, I myself actually um, 
suffered from a uh, neck uh, um, kind of injury and um, I had to use uh, a brace for uh, over about two months as a result of that. Wow. Many other women I'm sure felt uh, had, had, uh, had been hurt in, in any case. But in any case, um, the community of secular intellectuals as a group did not endorse the um, uh, women's protests or uh, some of them actually um, used the pages of newspapers to criticize demonstrations by women. Because uh, for them, the uh, issues raised by women uh, were peripheral. Mm -hmm. uh, to the goals of the uh, national and uh, what they understood as anti-imperialist uh, struggle of uh, the new uh, government. So um, what happened, this, this position actually affected uh, the militancy and uh, continuity of the women's revolt. Can you say, could you say more about why so many of the leftist and sort of secular intellectuals, why did they see anti-imperialism and women's rights as counterposed? Yeah, well, I mean, um, we have, context is the most important thing. Mm -hmm. I'm sure you agree with me. Yes. In those days, um, not only feminist ideas were, the, were uh, complete, completely alien to the overwhelming majority of um, this quote unquote progressive um, um, men and, and sometimes women, because uh, the idea was that Iran was uh, surrounded by hostility of the imperialist forces and they took basically the, uh, the most important issue facing Iran uh, to, be, uh, to be national liberation, so to speak. And um, of course, I'm sure you, you, you <laughs> appreciate the fact that this was not uh, uniquely an Iranian phenomenon. Absolutely. In many Middle Eastern countries, I would say this so-called third world countries uh, national liberation uh, uh, have always come the, uh, as the top priority and the issues of women's rights were assumed to be um, resolved once the liberation has been achieved. So that was the case for uh, Iranian uh, um, national and liberal forces and even the left. Mm -hmm. This was despite the fact that since uh, for a whole century, since, you know, the post-constitutional uh, revolution uh, of 1905, left organizations, small as they were, nonetheless, they were the most advocates of women's rights to education, uh, to um, to not wearing veil because they they consider it as against the uh, modernizing trade, uh, but uh, 
At the same time, they were not um, advocating rights of women as women. They were not, you know, considering uh, that uh, the liberation should also start from, from home vis-a-vis uh, -vis men of their lives. So this was the case, unfortunately, and Iran uh, was not an exception to that rule. And I must add that uh, the absence of an uh, autonomous women's organization and uh, lack of political experience, as well as historical knowledge uh, of the experiences of pioneers of women's rights in Iran and elsewhere in the region in particular, uh, contributed to the sort of demise of women's protest and women's movement. One of the ways that the women's movement in 1979 was sort of attacked or criticized was for being supposedly elite, supposedly comprised of westernized upper middle class women. So there was this kind of kind of class critique that got waged. Um, and I wanted to I wanted to ask you about that because one of the very remarkable and sort of um, unprecedented features of the uprising we're witnessing right now is that it has crossed class lines. Um, and it's not it's definitely not um, led by or confined to um, you know, one particular class sector or one city. Um, but in March 1979, and as you said, context is everything, this was a time when the Islamist movement had really um, specifically worked to mobilize many women behind its values and slogans and banners. And of course, those were the dominant images that came out at the time um, of, you know, um, crowds of women voluntarily wearing the chador to show their allegiance to Khomeini and the revolution, um, that you know many women were inspired by the way that um, historical figures of Muslim women like Fatima, you know, were mobilized by a kind of um, you know um, Shiite revolutionary ideology that really you know did not ignore women, but rather you know purposely kind of offered them this supposedly alternative um, female Muslim subjectivity that was going to restore their dignity um, from the kind of westernized um, degradation of the U.S.-backed Shah. And it seemed that at the time, many, many women were hopeful. They were compelled by that, um, that vision and that possibility of a kind of new you know, respect and dignity for them as Muslim women. And the, the March 79 uprising didn't fit that narrative, right? It was, a, it was a very stark contrast to that kind of dominant image of women mobilizing in support of Khomeini and the revolution. And, and some of that, um, at least the way that I understand it, did have to do with, with class. Um, so I wonder if you could talk more about a couple of things, why you think so many women were compelled by sort of the Shiite vision that Khomeini was offering, and also what you think is problematic about the way that the women who did protest in 79 were sort of attacked uh, for their class background. Well, you know, in, <clears throat> in what you, you are saying, um, uh, many issues are included many um, subjects that um, 
separately should be discussed. First one is why before the revolution, uh, some women uh, would go to demonstrations and uh, protests against Shah wearing veil. That also, and at the same time, the question of class composition of women who joined the, um, the revolution, so to speak. The fact is that many um, reforms of the two Pahlavi uh, Shahs uh, had actually benefited many middle class. And in, if we consider education as uh, a basic rights for women, also in terms of access to education. Uh, that was actually uh, one of the major achievements for women. Also, I want to uh, emphasize that um, removing the veil that uh, became legal, so to speak, or was carried out uh, by police for some times during the Reza Shah, the first of Pahlavi kings, in any case, in my personal view, benefited women. And I must say in parentheses that um, even before, uh, immediately after uh, the constitutional revolution uh, in uh, 1911, um, there were women who had uh, taken up uh, to appear uh, unveiled in public. These were, for example, teachers of uh, a handful of uh, girls' schools, uh, or women from, yes, from uh, upper classes, educated women, so on and so forth. And Reza Shah, Reza Shah's uh, government did not actually support these women hmm. uh, who were petitioning him repeatedly for support because they were attacked on uh, streets by uh, the, uh, the gangs who were mobilized by, uh, by the... Uh, Mullahs. Mm -hmm. However, when Iran's uh, reforms uh, became a little bit more uh, expanded uh, during that period, uh, and Reza Shah, under the uh, influence of his advisors, who were all uh, highly educated, European educated men, mm -hmm. and also under the influence of what was happening in Turkey during the Ataturk. Uh, announced that uh, women are to appear in public uh, unveiled. Mm. Yes, it, it created uh, many uh, backlashes. It, it created many resistance on the part of the most religious section of the population under the influence of the mullahs. But many women also benefited from mm. uh, going unveiled, going to public schools that increased uh, in numbers dramatically at that period. Of course, everything is in the context. Mm -hmm. And uh, universities, uh, immediately the opening of Tehran University, for example, opens its doors to women. Uh, women, uh, a few a number of women were uh, able to have access to some sort of employment. So these were positive changes. These reforms continued during the Shah's time, um, who uh, 
came to power after his father, uh, after the Second World War. So, um, or during, I must say, during the uh, first, uh, Second World War. In any case, we, women my generation, were the products of the reforms of the Pahlavi regime. There is no question about that. Access to education, possibility of employment, some, uh, some um, changes in favor of women in, in uh, the family law, new family law that was uh, enacted in the 1960s. These were all uh, positive changes. Mm -hmm. However, what was lacking was democracy, right. political democracy. Right. What was lacking was freedom of expression. Right. All independent women organizations of which we had quite a number during the 1930s, for example, uh, were banned from activity and uh, were, um, uh, what's the word? Um, were um, replaced by, by a state uh, created and supported uh, women's organization. And their focus was on mostly on charity oriented activities. Mm -hmm. And given the lack of democracy, dictatorship and authoritarian characters of both uh, the Pahlavi kings, this created a backlash not only against feminism, but against women's rights in general. Right. And because of that, because, you know, yes, this society had developed and a new middle class had grown and uh, women, uh, pe people uh, and women in, in more specifically were enjoying the fruits of the, these reforms. Nonetheless, as it happens in every other society, they needed uh, democracy. They started to demand that, and what they were facing was coercion, arrests, torture, not to the extent that we are witnessing today, but again, it was what, what for example, the younger generation, the students uh, and the middle class uh, uh, section of the population was facing, mm -hmm. the wall of dictatorship. Right. That is why some, some of these um, groups or sections of the population took up whale as a form of protest against the reforms of the Pahlavi era. I think, and in my book actually, I uh, argue that this was a huge mistake on, on our part. Mm. I, of course, personally never, never took veil, but if university students, for example, uh, uh, were doing this, and this in, in uh, um, this was something that was not actually uh, ignored by the Pahlavi regime, and they were concerned about this fact. Mm -hmm. But unfortunately, they didn't take it uh, seriously. Mm -hmm. These, you know, uh, ticking bomb mm -hmm. that was uh, being uh, formed 
in the form of uh, discontent of the middle classes and uh, working classes, of course, was suffering from a different sort of uh, repression. So this was uh, the reason for that. Do you um, think, sorry. Yeah, go ahead. Do you think looking back, I mean, something that I hear a lot um, right now is that um, there's a, there, that, that there should be a, a, a principle that the government, no government should have the right to, um, you know, control women's bodies, right? I mean, we have a version of this in the United States that largely manifests around issues of access to um, abortion and reproductive justice, you know, this idea that the state should not control women's bodies. Um, and you hear this now a lot in Iran, this idea that the state should not um, get to decide what women wear, that this should be left um, up to women themselves. And so I wonder if if we think about that as a kind of prince, a feminist principle, perhaps um, it it does make me wonder about you know the impact of forcible unveiling. I mean, do you think looking back that you know if if the state had not forced women you know um, at the you know at the risk of you know being punished by the police even to unveil if there had actually been a kind of I don't know a decree that like veiling was optional. <laughs> That, that might have, you know, um, I don't know, that that might have, um, uh, you know, lessened the kind of religious backlash that you're talking about, or that that might have been actually a better way um, to go about instituting these kinds of reforms. Absolutely. I, I don't think, you know, um, any, any person who is, uh, who is well versed in the history modern history of Iran during, particularly during the um, Reza Shah period when uh, anti-veiling took place would, would disagree with you mm -hmm. that uh, using force was the wrong uh, policy mm -hmm. uh, to unveil women. However, you should also, because <laughs> again, I go back to the context of, uh, you know, these historical events, mm -hmm. uh, you should consider the strong resistance of uh, the mullahs, the clergymen, at the time uh, against um, uh, this policy and the way they were uh, actually mobilizing day in, day out, their forces against uh, women who had voluntarily uh, dropped their veil. And uh, we have actually in, in the Iran National Archives has issued um, uh, two uh, document, uh, collection of documents about unveiling, uh, uh, came out about 15 years ago, I believe. And they show that initially the uh, uh, communique and uh, instructions from the government offices to the provinces uh, where that they should not use force, but use uh, a series of uh, speeches and uh, encourage the wives of uh, civil servants, for example, to appear in public. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, at some point, uh, well, given the uh, authoritarian character of Reza Shah, that when he, he wanted something, it had to be uh, implemented at all costs. Uh, the 
forceful uh, unveiling took place. This was a mistake, uh -huh. but I wouldn't necessarily, um, you know, uh, consider what happened in, in that period as the root causes of what's happening, uh, what happened uh, after the 1979 revolution. Right. The mullahs throughout the 50 years of the Pahlavi rules try to block any development in women's, uh, uh, in favor of women. Right. That is, you know, documented, that is a known fact. They were even against, for example, uh, the uh, franchise for women. They were against uh, the reforming family law. They were against, even sometimes against education, mm -hmm. against people listening to radio, so, I mean, uh, that should also be a factor in our analysis of uh, what led to the 1979 revolution. Yeah. Definitely, I would think, uh, I would uh, underline the question of lack of uh, democracy, lack of uh, reforms without consultation with, for example, women themselves. Uh, with people in any, um, you know, uh, issue. And uh, so unfortunately that led to the support, massive support that uh, by default uh, we gave to uh, the revolution under the leadership of uh, one of the uh, most uh, conservative clergymen mm -hmm. in Can you talk a little bit about how compulsory hijab became so central to the Islamic Republic and, and how, if you agree, it, it, it was from the beginning sort of um, inseparable from a kind of broader anti-democratic consolidation of, of power. Because when I um, observe the protests today and the way that the issue of compulsory hijab has become a lightning rod for all of these other grievances, to me, it feels like a vindication of the March uprising in 1979 when women were saying, you know, forcing us to wear hijab is taking away our rights. And this is part of taking away many other rights. Um, so can you talk a little bit about how and why compulsory hijab became so central to the ideology and the and the kind of governmental practices of this government, because a lot of people are saying that, you know, this is not a policy that you could sort of reform away. This is an attack on the whole edifice um, of the regime. So sort of going back to the inception of this policy and the battles and contestations over it. Yeah, if you could just talk more about why this compulsory hijab piece is so kind of structurally foundational to the government. I, I want to actually emphasize that um, hijab is the way it is uh, basically practiced or is forced on women is not a, just another piece of cloth at some, as some cultural relativist uh, colleagues of us were arguing. Um, sometime uh, in the last um, two decades or so. It is not a tool of women's empowerment as, as they would argue with us. Hijab, like I said, is not really um, 
uh, is not um, a piece of cloth. It's, there is an ideology behind imposition of hijab. The government repeatedly, they, this is something that uh, started from Khomeini and has continued all over from uh, other um, people who have, uh, have come to power as president um, that, uh, that it is the identity of the Islamic Republic, the hijab of women. It is controlling uh, women's body. It is uh, uh, basically, you know, um, lack of choice um, and using the element of coercion that is sometimes totally uh, over, uh, overseen in terms of what uh, hijab constitutes for, for the rulers of Iran. We have heard so much about um, the excessive use of cosmetics, for example, uh, among the young women or uh, nose surgeries or you know, alluring dresses that uh, they wear. And no one pays attention to the fact that it has been a way for basically subverting the control of the, uh, the, of the states um, uh, that is expressed by imposing uh, compulsory hijab. So, uh, so this, this, you know, the question of hijab must be uh, studied beyond what it appears to be and more in terms of what ideas are behind the uh, forced hijab. Yes, and as, as you were saying, context really matters. And there, ha there have been decades now, as you were saying, of a whole range of strategies and tactics that women have used to sort of resist um, state control over their bodies and also to resist internalizing a sort of alienation from their own bodies produced by state uh, surveillance and control. And it seems that now we're, we're, we're living in the moment where that has broken out of the private sphere of the secret parties and of the home into the street, into, pu into public spaces, um, into, you know, state controlled spaces like schools. Um, and so th this is the sort of like you know, almost like drama of the moment, right? Is that these um, more secretive tactics are now being done collectively, publicly, visibly on social media. Um, and of course, you know, people are getting arrested after posting pictures of themselves or being um, on video. And then we hear a few days later, they're now in prison, right? Or, or even most tragically, some of the recent um, horror stories of the deaths of, of very young of teenage girls um, in custody after participating in some of these protests. So women are really risking their lives um, to, to resist this relationship to their bodies and to, tr to transform it. Um, and so I wanted to ask you about the potential in this moment for solidarity, um, and in particular for transnational feminist solidarity. Just a couple of weekends ago, October 2nd, um, there was a call put out for an international day of feminist solidarity with the uprising in Iran. And that, that call came from Iranian feminists, many of whom had been part of organizing the One Million Signatures campaign, which took place um, in 2006 uh, for a few years 
uh, within Iran, where women were organizing, um, you know, publicly gathering signatures to try to change 10 discriminatory laws against uh, women. And um, that movement was eventually, um, you know, uh, repressed. Um, but those women have, you know, have gone on to, um, to organize, you know, recently, um, this call for transnational feminist solidarity with the with the current uprising. And so I wanted to ask you about what you see as the kind of potentials, the importance of transnational feminist solidarity, and um, any concerns you have about about some of the the struggles to actually do transnational feminist solidarity in a way that is well informed by context, um, and some of maybe the challenges of of um, when we do try to cross borders and contexts. You know, um, sometimes things can get um, a bit a bit complicated or a bit muddled. Um, and yet it, it does seem like this is a moment when Iranians themselves are calling for solidarity, when they want the whole world to show up for them, to care about them, to connect with their struggle, to mobilize um, on the streets of cities around the world, as many people have been doing um, in order to uplift um, their voices. Yes, that's a very important point. And we should actually pay attention to the fact of support that these protests in Iran is now getting from many uh, female supporters, um, be they, you know, known celebrities or academics or whatever they, uh, you know, we have seen clips of women uh, transnationally uh, cutting a piece of their hair in solidarity uh, with Iranian women. Uh, these are very, very important mo historical moments in, in my view. And going back to the question of slaves and, and women, you know, let's not forget that uh, women's body uh, is not only most important area of uh, experiencing repression, but at the same time, the most important area of resistance, pleasure and, and kind of transcendence. That is why the uh, negating activity of Iranian women appeals uh, to women globally. And uh, it is very important for, for us to record, actually, to remember. In terms of, you know, um, you are absolutely right that this, uh, this round, it is women themselves, people of Iran themselves, who are asking for uh, support from the world, basically, for their struggle that's not and should not be uh, reduced to the question of hijab. Because uh, there are so many, it is really a struggle against the right to make a livelihood in peace. And um, this is something that, um, you know, I want to actually emphasize in terms of when we talk about uh, the struggle uh, that's happening right now uh, in Iran, in terms of the question of uh, all the issues that triggered uh, this protest against Mahsa's, uh, Mahsa Amini's brutal murder in custody. We should not forget all other factors that were involved in this kind of explosion of anger by Iranian uh, people. 
persistent assault that they have faced uh, all these years on their livelihood and sense of dignity. This is very, very important as well as you know, the material conditions that have led to this, the alarming level of unemployment, for example, uh, that is uh, over 27% uh, for the youth and 20% for the general population, dramatic decline in real wages for the working people. Now the official statistics uh, actually uh, uh, present the um, people number of or percentage of people who live under the poverty line as uh, to be 50%. Of course, the successive uh, sets of sanctions have been an important factor, but uh, um, that's, that hasn't been many, many economies from inside Iran and out uh, are telling us that uh, um, this is, you know, the corruption, the, uh, um, the corruption of the ruling clerics and their family members and the financial gains that they have actually um, um, attained as a result of the sanctions, the, such as the purchase of publicly owned industrial complexes that were basically distributed uh, among the cronies of the regime many cases of embezzlements, fraud and theft of public funds that go unpunished, uh, uh, you know, that, that these are something, um, not to mention the isolation of uh, Iran uh, from the world community. Of course, with the exception of few countries like Venezuela, Cuba, Syria, North Korea, and of course the economic relations with Russia and China that people really, really disapprove of and are very angry about. So I want to say that the confluence of these uh, features led to this, uh, the last episode of brutality of regime against uh, Mahsa Amini to brought the society to this point. And um, that's why we say that it is different because now they are, the people are talk, targeting uh, the whole, the totality of the regime. Yes. Uh, and yeah, and I'm glad that you brought up this um, relationship between sanctions from the US and other Western governments and, and the regime itself because, um, because I think that you're right, that the regime has been able to enrich itself and really exploit this situation um, to its own benefit. And Absolutely. even and even during um, the period of maximum sanctions that that, you know, Trump initiated and Biden continued, this is the period in which the current president, Raisi, the, the, the hanging judge, right, the, the person who oversaw the judiciary for so long and is responsible for the deaths of so many dissidents, that, that he becomes this, this hardline president and this very strict, harsh hijab law goes into effect this past summer. So it, it, it's, it's important to talk about those facts and, and in part because, well, because they contribute to the uprising, as you said, but also um, because I think right now, you know, many Iranians um, 
mostly perhaps in diaspora, um, although perhaps some in Iran, you know, there's there's such a sense of desperation to get rid of the Islamic Republic for all of these very legitimate reasons, so that you hear many people arguing that we that we should, um, you know, write to our Congress people in the United States that we should be pressuring the U.S. government um, to impose more sanctions um, on Iran um, in the name of supporting the uprising, um, and and you yourself um, for a long many, many years in your writing, um, you've always been clear, I think, about the need to oppose both um, U.S. foreign intervention in Iran and the um, brutality and authoritarianism and corruption of the Islamic Republic. Um, and you've been very critical of people who feel they have to sort of pick a side and endorse either the U.S. or the Islamic Republic in that sort of um, geopolitical fight that they've been having um, for a very long time now. Um, the U.S. government, of course, uses the discourses of human rights and women's rights cynically to further its own foreign policy agenda um, in Iran and many other places, while the Iranian government deploys the language of anti-imperialism, sovereignty, self-determination to justify crackdowns on internal dissent, labeling protesters agents of, of you know, the U.S. Or, or Israel, which is exactly the playbook they're, they're using right now. Um, so my question to you, having lived through um, the women's uprising in 79 and the way that the legitimate demands of those women kind of got erased in this larger battle over national sovereignty and against imperialism, how can we avoid this new feminist revolution getting kind of swallowed up again, you know, in these ideological battles between the U.S. or the West and, and the Islamic Republic? Because I think this question of, you know, sanctions and um, mobilizing kind of pressure from the U.S. as a, as a support or, or act of solidarity for the Iranian people kind of plays right into that exact um, dispute, right, um, where the Iranian government then uses that to, de to try to delegitimize um, the protests. So, so can you talk about that kind of problematic and, and, and how that's playing out right now and ways that we can kind of subvert that or challenge that? Yes, um, about, you know, the, uh, I must say a word about the sanctions that you raised and it is so important because yes, there are people who think that uh, more sanctions would <laughs> resolve the problem uh, in Iran. Sanctions, history tells us, has never worked in, in any places uh, because it is mostly um, negatively and, and dramatically affect ordinary people, not the rulers. They, I mean, the experience of Iraq um, and Libya are the best examples. I mean, in Iraq, millions, millions of uh, babies and kids were uh, were um, basically uh, were dead as a result of the sanctions placed on uh, Saddam Hussein's regime. And where is Iraq today? I mean, we know that, and there is no need to recall the problems uh, that this uh, tiny country uh, faces. So. Um, uh, However, solidarity uh, and support uh, from the even Western governments, the, the people are in a different category and the ordinary people usually uh, don't uh, approve of suppression of uh, other people in other lands. 
But in terms of governments, there are ways to support Iranian people. The United States government, you are absolutely right. Forget about the, you know, the history. Uh, uh, and I don't want to go back to the question of the 1953 uh, coup d'etat against the uh, uh, government of Dr. Mossadegh that if had not happened, maybe Iran would be a different Iran today. Forget about that. However, right now we know that uh, tens of uh, hundreds, I would say, of uh, people um, from the uh, uh, of government authorities, children live in the United States, enjoy the uh, personal freedom um, and all things that uh, the United States uh, uh, has to offer to them, uh, going to very good universities, you know, enjoying life that something basic, basic pleasures of life that are denied to Iranian youth inside Iran with the stolen money from the Iranian people, from the public funds. One of the demands repeatedly presented by uh, people in Iran and outside is that why they find refuge uh, these people find refuge in the United States and Canada. You're talking about um, officials who, gov Islamic Republic officials who live yes, in the U.S. and Canada. And okay, exactly. Yeah. I, I was yes. Um, so some of the some of the some of the ministers, actually people who are in the in position of you know uh, um, being the, in the, in the cabinet or. Um, uh, in the Islamic guards, high officials, high um, commandants, they freely come and go to Canada, for example, if not the United States. But definitely their children find, find the United States a haven that they come and spend uh, the money stolen from people. So this is something that at least uh, in support of the struggle of people uh, can these governments do? Uh, and instead they resort to sanctions that, uh, as, as I mentioned briefly, has really benefited, uh, have benefited uh, some of these officials uh, financially. So um, this is something that, uh, you know, people have in mind. And also what happened in Afghanistan is very much on the minds of many Iranian people uh, that I know. And that is leaving basically the women uh, of Afghanistan at the mercy of the Taliban. I don't want to uh, go into uh, the details of what happened. Uh, that's not uh, our concern here, but at the very least, you know, uh, uh, we should, uh, we should, uh, have in mind that when they talk about human rights and the rights of women, always some political gain is involved uh, and uh, using, uh, uh, it is basically an excuse for, for, for them to attack uh, unfriendly governments or punish uh, unfriendly uh, governments, so on and so forth. As to um, the last question that you had about um, 
uh, how women now in Iran uh, can avoid the mistakes of um, their um, predecessors, uh, other women who rose against the uh, Islamists' uh, policies in 1979 um, let's not forget that uh, the, our protests uh, and our movement in 1979 was taking place at the beginning of the establishment of the Islamic regime. There were lots of illusions about the character of the regime and the intentions of uh, Ayatollah Khomeini for the reasons that we discussed at the beginning of in conversation. To, uh, Besides, um, the true face of Khomeini was not known to, to women like me, um, and or men for that matter. Um, and almost no, none of us had read uh, Khomeini's books uh, and his ideas were completely unknown. So uh, we have somehow uh, put uh, our, our uh, close our eyes to the fact of his positions in the 1960s against women's rights and against, uh, for example, women's rights to vote, so on and so forth. Now in 2022, the young Iranian women who are uh, burning their scarves in public, dancing and cutting their hair have full knowledge of the true nature of Islamic regime and is, uh, its misogynist policies are very well known and they have experienced it with their own bodies. They have suffered the results of Islamification uh, policies in every uh, area of their beings. So uh, they are more radically confronting the regime and they, uh, they know uh, actually that uh, as long as this regime is in power, nothing can get better. Uh, also in 1979, uh, we didn't have uh, the support as we discussed it earlier of uh, political organizations, including the left. Now all political organizations from the left to liberal, to royalist, to you name it, they, they are in support of uh, of the uh, women's rights struggles. And the high points of uh, this support is unfolding in front of our eyes in the uprisings in the streets uh, of uh, Iran. And uh, another, another issue is the very young women, uh, high school girls who are now actively participating in these protests and demonstrations. It is true that, um, as I mentioned, in the 1979 anti-veil demonstrations, also they were involved, but their involvement was uh, mostly um, under the influence of older um, 
older uh, women, like their parents, their teachers, or older siblings, so on and so forth. In 2022, at present, these young girls, the so-called Generation Z, are independently involved. And uh, at times, as we have seen from the clippings, they lead the uh, protest. Uh, and in fact, I must say that they are our grandchildren who are rectifying uh, our mistakes, the mistakes of parents and grandparents. So um, also we had difficulty at the time in 1979 in uh, organizing meetings, in uh, you know, uh, announcing meetings uh, because of the hostility of uh, most uh, uh, media uh, outlets, be it print or otherwise. And now is not uh, the case. Um, and uh, not to mention that we did not benefit from the, uh, uh, the support of the expatriates. Uh, the, first of all, there were not so many Iranian uh, immigrants and refugees uh, outside Iran at the time, uh, but uh, they, they were not uh, organized. Most organizations had uh, fallen under the influence of supporters of the Islamists. Uh, and uh, not to mention that uh, we did not benefit from the experiences or uh, accumulated knowledge of the pioneers of women's life, women's uh, rights, women who had fought for uh, rights for over 100 years in Iran. This was out of ignorance, arrogance, or uh, lack of access to the materials. But now, fortunately, that's not uh, the case. Um, young women have access to um, feminist literature. Uh, and um, so uh, at the same time, they are uh, savvy users of uh, social media, they, they are connected to the world, something that we did uh, not have at the time. So I'm very hopeful about the uh, women's uh, future, women's movement, and um, very hopeful uh, about the present uh, uprisings uh, because um, they, they, the participants know what they want. We were kind of walking in the dark at the time, but now this is not the case. They don't want the Islamic Republic. They don't want the Supreme Leader. They don't want um, uh, repression. They, do, they want to enjoy life. This is basic rights of the young people on the streets. That's why they dance on the streets because having uh, a life, enjoying life, having pleasure uh, of body and otherwise is their rights. And this is what they want. And just consider that uh, the basic rights that they are uh, denied, such as right to be happy, right to dance, right to listen to music. 
it is ridiculous the way they are being, for example, questioned, arrested, or uh, punished for such small things like wearing uh, sunglasses, uh, wearing uh, short sleeve shirts by boys, or for a style of their modern style of their uh, hair, so on as not to speak, you know, uh, of uh, the punishment and the suffering that uh, women face for uh, so-called improperly, being improperly raped. Well, I think that might be a good hopeful note to end on this image of a, a women's uprising, a feminist revolution for joy and pleasure. Um, and, and that I think um, is an important, needs to be an important part of every liberation movement. So I thank you so much, Dr. Morisi, for joining me today and sharing your deep knowledge of the history of women's struggle in Iran um, and your own experiences and thoughts about our current moment. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for having me and um, it was a pleasure to talk with you. You've been listening to Status, your go-to audio magazine on the Middle East and North Africa. Status is produced by the Arab Studies Institute in partnership with Voices of the Middle East and North Africa, co-sponsored by George Mason University's Middle East Studies Program and the American University of Beirut's Asfari Institute for Civil Society and Citizenship. Interested in pitching an interview, a program episode, or becoming a partner? email our associate producer Paola Messina at paola at statushour.com To listen to more conversations on the scene reports and discussions, visit our website www.statushour.com or subscribe via iTunes and listen to us on the go. You can also friend us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter. <laughs>